On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Innovation and Leadership, where we interview Navy SEALs, venture capitalists, pro athletes, best-selling authors, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of high achievers as we can get to come on the show. Today's episode is going to be from our mini-series that we created with Corporate Alliance, asking top CEOs and executives and entrepreneurs who have had very large exits, specifically about their thoughts on leadership and people. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. And it's actually what I want to start off with here as we jump into part two. Um, As you think about, you know, you'd been a city planner, you'd been a CPA, your mid-30s, you decided to get into this industry. You jump both feet into a $32 million project and you said it was maybe a little bit bigger than you probably should have started with. What's the difference from those early days, you're doing 30 million, 50 million in real estate, now where you've got 14 projects on the go, you got probably that many coming up, um, you know, you got 1.2 million in real, sorry, 1.2 billion in real estate, slight difference there, if you weren't aware, there's a slight difference. Um, what's different about doing level at the, you know, doing business at the billion dollar plus level versus the first 30 to 50 million? Yeah, so the 1.2 million is much easier than the 1.2 billion. So, um, let alone 50 million in 1.2. But uh, you know, as as we were early on, and and we were doing the the f- up to 50 million a year, or that we had done 50 million, or even the smaller deals at 1.2 or three three million. Um, the the challenge we face now, and I, I'm sure every company challenge faces this challenge is. As one of the founders of the business, I was involved with everything. So because of my background as, as, as an accountant, CPA, I was the CEO, CFO, COO. I, you know, I was involved with everything. Even though we had, you know, five to six people helping and doing project management and doing different things, I was involved with everything. I knew everything was going on as, as we continued to grow um, I was less able to be able to keep up with that, and it became 
that you can call it a kink in the hose. I became the kink in the hose or the bottleneck, uh, so to speak. And so uh, some of our people were trying to get things done, but they couldn't because I was heavily involved and they relied on me to do the things that needed to be done, maybe some of the challenging things, uh, even maybe not so challenging things. Cause one, maybe they not have felt comfortable doing it, or two, they felt like I needed to be involved because of, of the way it was before. And so as as we now are at this $1.2 billion and we're doing, you know, most of our growth has happened in the last two to three years. And so, you know, when you're doing $100 million versus now $500 million, you you don't have that ability to do that. And one of my biggest challenges was letting go, right? Having enough confidence in the people under me to let go. And until I learned that, there's that kink in that hose. And that kink in the hose has re- will restrict growth. And, and it causes a lot of problems. Now, you make the, the policies and procedures we have in place have have got to be to where they're scalable, right? And so... With with me being, even though I am a detail, I, you know, you think an accountant's a detail guy. I'm probably so far from being a detail guy that there is that uh, you wonder how I was ever an accountant. And so I'm I, I'm a big picture guy. I'm, I'm more, and I can get into the details if I want to. It's not what I like to do. And so it, it really took somebody else and understanding that to come in and really implement policies and procedures that help us scale. Because I'll just pass over them, uh, which is a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, as I see CEOs and those and those people, they're more strategic. And I needed to step out and be more strategic, uh, which we're still going through right now, um, trying to figure out how to put the right people into play in place. And we've got the team on board to to go through that, uh, or, or to uh, you know change the organizational structure where I'm not in the details, where everybody else is now making the decisions. And so I think that's also important as we move forward in, into this fund is to know that, look, I can be strategic and our other executive team can be strategic and then we have the, the project managers and the asset managers and the, and the accounting and the, the people underneath them able to make the decisions based on the policies and procedures that, that we have set up. And then we, we can now be more strategic, especially me as a CEO, which has been difficult to learn. I mean, it, you would think that should be easy. You know, people grow up wanting to be the CEO and just being up at the top and, you know, not, you, you don't think they're doing anything, but it is a very, very tough thing to to learn, especially starting a company where that's your baby. And you feel like, look, if I let go, are we going to have the revenues to support these 40 people, right? Now you got to start thinking about their families. And so it's it's been a very challenging thing for me to do. And, um, I've accepted that. We've moved on. There's still some anxiety a little bit with it, but I think we've got good people in the company for that growth to continue to happen. You know, I, I think about that balance beam of of uh, letting go, right? And and it's the you know You're from sing micromanagement, right? Now. right? <laughs> so from you know, falling off one side of the balance beam might be micromanagement. Falling the other side of the balance beam is abdication, not you know, not giving people enough of the tools to get their job done or, you know, having had the training and skill sets, right? Um, I think about my mentor who uh, built that fund with me and uh, 
he used to talk, he grew up in a home full of entrepreneurs and he used to talk about how his dad instilled in him. This is a pep talk I was receiving. I was having all this anxiety. Right? I like pep talk. <laughs> and he said that his dad talked to him. They owned a bunch of convenience stores and gas station stuff. And uh, his dad would say, well, here's the thing. You just need to be okay with the fact that your staff are going to do a worse job when you come home because you're gone. And he says, but here's the, adva- here's the advantage. You could eat dinner with your family. Because otherwise you just have to stay at the store all day, you know? That's and, great advice. And it's tough for me because I want it all done and I want it done yesterday and I want it done perfect, and, right? And, um, and when you think about this, this letting go, I think you're right. I think it is a very much folks who it's their baby and they are the ones with those skill sets. But now, you know, they're a victim of their own success of there's not enough of them to go around and, and they need to build a system, right? So advice for the rest of us who, who maybe are at a similar inflection point of trying to you know, build a more robust system so it can be less of us, what kind of things would you suggest as a way to know if our system is robust enough? What can we be measuring or what can we, what can we do to know if the system and the policies and procedures are really going to keep stuff from slipping through the cracks and really going to deliver or not? You know, it, the, it's implementation, right? You have to go through it to see if it's slipping through the cracks. And there's going to be tweaks. What I learned by letting go is it, there's a lot smarter people here than I am. Um, and you just have to trust that. They're going to make mistakes because I made mistakes. We all made mistakes early on. We just corrected them. Uh, we corrected them usually ourselves because we were – or we had a smaller group. Now we have a bigger staff that has more experience doing different things that can correct. And so you, you, we, we set the policies in place. We let them go through the current policies. And if we need to change, we change. But we have a safety net. And we are the safe. The executives are the safety net from the standpoint of the CEO, the CFO, and all the other executives that had the experience that grew with the company, with me or another company. And so you can't have... A deep uh, uh, the safety net can't be so far away that you have to restart, but you could have the safety net that's closer. You know, an example is this Sunday night. I'm watching. Uh, we love American Ninja Warrior, and so my wife sit and watch it. But they have now they have this additional course. The last thing on it is where they're climbing this with their hands. They're climbing this 35 foot um, elevator shaft. And you get up there 35 feet and you go, okay, what happens if his farms just give out? How does he fall? But they've got this safety net down below him, so if they fall, they only fall like seven feet. So I, I use that as an example is let's let them go work hard and get everything they've done. They have the policies and procedures in place. But here we are is this, this safety net to catch them when they get so tired that they, that they fail. And then we'll bring them back up to the top so we don't have to go start all over and maybe have it as a disaster. It, it sounds like you're also saying, you know, not so close at smothering them, but not so far that, that it's not going to do its job. That, yes, exactly. That's a better way to say it. More sophisticated way to say it than how I said it. <laughs> so um, thinking about what that looks like logistically, is this a, is this a monthly report? That, is this a weekly report? Is this what, – what is that – you know, getting a bit granular for just a minute. What what does that look like of the executives being a safety net? Yeah, so here's how we've done that. It is a weekly report. Uh, Mondays are our meetings with with executive staff, with um, 
the executives and their staff. And there is reporting. There's the, the weekly reporting, and then each each discipline on the executive team has a monthly reporting on their dashboard. So, for example, right now, I, I'm in charge of reporting on the equity and investments, or, or the equity side of that um, in our investors' relationships. And so once a month, I'll bring a report in that shows it has criteria, but I have people under me prepare that report. Uh, and then they have to give it to me, and, and I meet with them weekly. But then I report to the, the executive team once a month. We have the same thing with our chief investment officer. He He's in charge of all the pipelines, and then he has his analyst staff underneath him that work on – they have their weekly Monday meeting where they're reporting and they're doing their analy- uh, analytics. And so that's the process we've gone through, and it seems to work really well because now they report up to their executive – and then the executive reports to the rest of the executive team and the CEO. We're trying, we've now hired the, the fund manager and another investor relation guy to take away that responsibility for me so I now can get out of that role and then they can now report up to um, the executive team through this, the chief investment officer on how equity raises go on and, and just the, the uh, goals and, and the, the dashboard items that we need to hit to make sure we accomplish the goal. Love it. Um, taking a bit of a, a right turn here, a, a different set of kind of questions have been coming to my mind thinking about this is, you know, you brought up that so many entrepreneurs are kind of more big picture guys, gals, right? Um, when you think about the million things you could do next, my, my two-part question is, one, how do you feel like you know what the right thing to do next is? How do you come to that decision? And then two, uh, any tips you have for keeping yourself disciplined for what you've decided the right thing to do next is, even when there's other shiny pennies that show up? Yeah, so the first one, how do we know what to do next? That, you know, my mind's always thinking um, when, when whatever business you're in, I'm sure you're thinking of that next thing, that next big deal. And so as I'm traveling and I'm looking at different deals uh, going across the country, whether it be a hotel deal or a new apartment project in a downtown market, what I typically will do is I'll listen to a story or I'll have a thought and I'll bring it to our, uh, for example, our executive team or our chief investment officer and say, hey, you guys, we do some research on this or find somebody to do some research. So uh, an example is that right now is we're looking at um, the old residence inns. So they have a gen- generation one residence inn. Um, they're old, they're tired. Marriott likes the new urban, gen- they're even the even just the new upgraded um, residence in that look nicer, that are not just the walk-ups, that feel like a real a, a better hotel to compete with some of the other competition out there. So, you know, we started to think through things of what, what would you do? I mean, is there a business plan behind gen one, generation ones to convert them to apartments or, you know, do something else with them? And so we, that type of thing we start strategizing is it may first start with my chief investment officer or the COO or somebody, and then we will formulate a plan and say, hey, let's do some research on it. So we've now gone had interns or other, sometimes we've used BYU students, sometimes we've used other college students just to do some research, and then we formulate a plan. If it makes sense, then we'll, we'll take it to that next phase. So we try to use... Um, interns, staff, 
the expertise around here to decide what lo what is our next step. And we try to keep current on what's happening so we don't get caught in, in a situation where we're going down a, a path that we shouldn't be going down to. So an example right now in the hospitality industry, industry, I think we're getting to a peak to where there's, you know, there, there was a lot of opportunities you know, over the last three years in hospitality. I think we're now getting to that peak where we're being very cautious and, and being very selective on where to go. And that's because of some research that's, that's been done and, and things we're looking at. Now, we can never guess where it's going to be, and there's things that happen, but there are trends. Uh, same with multifamily uh, in, in areas, and you look at this millennial generation, you look at now the Gen Z, which we're heavily looking at now, because the millennials are going to now start shifting some of their, their mindsets, and they're going to start shifting where they were. So we got to make sure we're following trends, and we got to make sure we're following that, that, that generation and find as much information about it as we can as an executive team and and as a whole company. Um, it comes back to this leadership that if if we can listen to the new generation to see what they want, it's going to help us shift to what the trends are in the future. Okay. Um, I feel like a real value from what you've said is that uh, it sounds like you do a lot of empirical backup and that regardless of how you feel about things, you're going out there and checking you know, does the data support how I'm feeling? I know I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but is that fair? Or that Exactly, right. And I think it's because what we talked about before, I, I know my background uh, is I grew up on a farm. I'm not super sophisticated, but I know that there are people in, the, in this organization that are, or any other organization. And so I think that's not being as smart as most people. I think that's a benefit to me, even though it shouldn't be a benefit to me. <laughs> Well, you think about, you know, let's say one guy who's at 95% versus 10 guys who are at 90%, who would you rather bet on, you know? Uh, good point. I agree. Um, well, let's go for part two of this question. So you do some research, you, you feel good about a direction. As the CEO, where you've got the opportunity to shift this, you know, to steer the boat differently if you want, and maybe you don't have as much ADHD as me, so, so maybe it's not so bad for you. But uh, when you do have the shiny penny come along and you do have something that sounds fun and exciting and maybe emotionally you have a desire for it, but you feel like you should stay the course, any tricks that you do to help yourself kind of rein in and do what you think you should do instead of what you feel like doing? I'm still learning that. But one of the tricks that it's a, it's a good lesson is I think back of the times that I fell in love with a deal and I did the deal and we lost a lot of money. So I'm still, well, I still do things like that, but it's having a team around it and knowing the, the process that I can't make the decision anymore by myself. Now I'll push and my, no, and our, our executive team, they say, then one of my partners says, look, you come into room, we got five guys around the table and you've got your boxing gloves on and we can't get you down. And so, and they understand that and I understand that, but it, it's, it's healthy for us and it, as like I said, my the best thing I have, if they can remind me, look, here's a deal that we did that we shouldn't have done. We forced a deal to, to go that had the shiny penny, and it didn't work, and we lost a lot of money on it. And that could, that could have even taken us a different direction. And so now, as we look at these things, it, it takes the team, and that's the hard thing, even though I want to I wanna do 
So there's some cool things. And, 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 you know, as an entrepreneur, you're just, you get excited about some things, but it, it's learning from, from our team and learning from other experience and learning from my experience that when you do some of those things that don't make sense and you lose money, it's hard. Sure. Uh, I think I was just having slight PTSD as you were talking. <laughs> so I was thinking about some of mine, right? But I think it's totally accurate of, you know, you hear that thing, um, wisdom comes from, wisdom comes from experience, you know? And it's like, um, oh, I'm totally messing that up. But it's like good, oh, good choices come from uh, experience. Experience comes from bad choices, <laughs> right? That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate. I mean, like, as much as possible, it'd be great to learn from other people's mistakes, but uh, those seem like the ones we make uh, are that much more poignant longer term, huh? Yeah, I I agree. If if I I'm sitting here thinking about if I didn't have the team and the process set up that I have now, would I have forgotten those deals that I did that I shouldn't have done? Would that experience that I had before cause me? to think about doing that deal. And I honestly, I, I probably still would do it because we have a short memory. And, and so as we look at that, I say that that's what helps me, but I think it's the people around me that help me remember how that was. And so even if I was out on my own still, or as small as we were, where I was making the decisions, I still may be making the, the wrong ones, right? I mean, I hope not, but that's a possibility because it gets it gets sexy or it gets that silver, that, that shiny penny. So, you know, I, I like that that quote, but I think it really takes, for me, I think it helps to have the group around me that that help us rem, help remind us. Look, that's you had this experience before. You know, uh, it's not an exact comparison, but it does remind me a little bit of if you read any of those like old um, Stoics or like the Spartans or like the bunch of the samurai writings, they talk a bunch about like, think about your death. You know, this is the thing that warriors have like, consider your mortality daily, you know, so that people don't get a big head basically. Yeah. And, um, I think, uh, not pretending that we haven't made mistakes can really be a benefit of, you know, having that humility of I'm a human as good as I feel about this now, guess what I felt good about before. Right. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. That you have to recognize your mistakes. Well, uh, listen, we're getting close to the end of part two here. Um, besides people, you know, joining C4 at Corporate Alliance and coming hanging out at CEO events with us and calling you to, to buy into your investments. By the way, besides coming to the website, what's the website? Website's pegdev.com, P-E-G-D-E-V.com. Okay. Besides somebody just looking at the website, calling you guys, saying, hey, I want to I buy into hotels with you too. What, what's a good way for people to get a hold of you? Email or what's, what's good? Yeah, they can email me at cgunter at pegdev.com um, or one of my investor relations guys, Brad Mertz at bmertz, M, or B-M-E-R-T-Z at pegdev.com. Sure. Um, so, okay, glad we got that out of the way. Final question here. Was that the advertisement part? That's of the it? advertisement part. So, um, thinking about um, the difference between medium-sized business versus big business, what advice would you give to folks out there who are really trying to make it into that billion billion dollar plus level? It, it, that's a great question for us right now, is because we made that decision uh, from from the medium business, where, as I said earlier, where I could be involved with a lot more. 
versus going to that next level. If you go to that next level, you now have to become a corporate structure. You have to really let go and be the guy or the, the person that is more strategic. And you've got to help your other executives and teach them that now they have to be more strategic, more leaders and not the doers. And you've got to rely on the, the, the people under them and hire the right people to do the things that they need to do and follow the policies and procedures. And you manage to those policies and procedures in this, in this reporting, uh, whatever reporting system it is, whether it be weekly or monthly. And so in order to get to that next level, as we, we hear about all the time in business, it's scalability. Um, if you have this, the procedures in place, and you have the right people, you can scale. Um, if you want to stay that medium, small to medium-sized business, then it's, you know, there's a point where you grow to a point where it, it and one of my other partners says this all the time, you, you grow to a death, right? So you can either stay small or grow big. That medium gets in that weird spot to, is that profitable, is it not profitable? And can you scale it? So, that's always a challenge, and that's where we just came from. We could we made the decision to go big, versus come back and come back to where we were a, a small organization doing smaller projects. Great advice. Uh, appreciate how much time you spent with us. Thanks for making time. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Let's end there. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about: if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and. Trent Mano. I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time like 10 or 20 cents you pick what billboard you want it on what time of day you want it to run and it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and ceos who want to try something and see if it works you can buy as many or as few as you want change it as many times as you want Uh, i think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors we're pretty excited about it hope you check out blipbillboards.com thanks Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. 
More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.